Today, I'm going to pull together the threads of several things we've been talking about in the lectures over the last few years and look forward to the, uh, the impact of these on health globally. I've already talked about uh, the impact uh, specifically in the NHS and, uh, by extension, uh, high-income countries. Health globally is improving at a really remarkable pace now, and there's every reason, as I'll come on to, to expect that to continue. And this is due to a combination of medical science, uh, public health, and development. The biggest change, uh, which I'm going to talk about in the first part of this, is to diseases in childhood. And this is particularly noticeable in low-income countries because in those settings, uh, childhood deaths have been a very high proportion of the deaths that are seen. But child mortality is dropping fast everywhere, uh, and this is going to lead to significant and very welcome changes in global population structure. I'm then going to talk about slightly older children and young people, uh, and then uh, going to talk about younger adults, people under 50, uh, and then the people uh, who live through uh, the next 25 years uh, to 70, around 75. In each of these age bands, the health of people globally is improving, but which improvements matter depends which age we're talking about. And then finally, I'll talk rather more briefly, because this has really been covered more fully in the talk I gave on the NHS and health in the UK, uh, about some of the issues uh, of health in older people uh, over 75 uh, around the world. In summary, uh, there are some significant risks to progress, and we need to be very clear uh, viewed about that. Uh, and there are some areas where progress has been and continues to be slow. But overall, the future looks very optimistic. Uh, let's start with children under five. And I'm going to present the data on this in several different ways, because this is really an extraordinary uh, story and is going to shape the world uh, from here on in. If you look uh, over the period 1990 to 2020, so a 30-year period, uh, there's been a 61% decline uh, in the number of deaths uh, per 1,000 life births. Uh, and this is in every continent we're seeing improvements. Uh, and this improvement, for reasons I'll come on to, will continue because we've, although we made really substantial progress, uh, we have several more things which we can do uh, to make things better still. If we look historically, and this is a nice graphic uh, from Gapminder, what you can see is that this real change started where I put the uh, arrow uh, around about the turn of the last century, so around 1900. And since that time, there's been an, a steady decrease in child mortality, under five mortality, uh, around the world, starting in higher income countries, moving through to more middle income countries, uh, and now in general in uh, lower income countries. Where we are now is where I put the red arrow, uh, and you can see that uh, we're still dropping uh, and there's then a projection forward. Now, the exact speed of the drop from here on, I think uh, you could debate, but that there will continue to be dropping child mortality in this age group, uh, I think is extremely clear. And as you can see, we're now at a state where the probability of children dying under the age of five is really remarkably reduced compared to where it is, and generally uh, very low everywhere in the world. 
Looking at this geographically, uh, on the left, you've got uh, the map of under five mortality in 1990 and on the right in 2020. And as you can see in every continent, uh, this has gone from darker colours where higher mortality is seen to lighter colours. Uh, and this is uh, now quite highly concentrated in particular countries and in fact as a common to in particular parts of uh, those countries. If we look at a graph of under five mortality rate per thousand life births uh, uh, in 1990, 2000, and then uh, in uh, 2020, what you can see is in each of the regions uh, and each one of these stacks of three bar charts is a region, uh, there has been an improvement. So this is an improvement everywhere. The biggest absolute drops are in Africa, which is uh, the stack on the far left, comparing 1990, 2000, and 2020 in the dark colors. Um, uh, through, uh, but it, there's also significant improvements uh, in Asia and Latin America, but solid improvements elsewhere. On the right uh, are Europe and North America and Australia and New Zealand, still an improvement, uh, and that is the place to which every country in the world is now heading. Now, I've looked at this in a bit more detail uh, in this, I've shown this in a bit more detail in this map, because it is important to realize also that many of the countries which have got significant child mortality still uh, have quite varied patterns around the country. So if you look at India, for example, there are parts of uh, India which have still some significant child mortality, other parts where it has dropped a very long way. So it's not just by country, it's also uh, often quite localized. But in, by whichever measure you look at it, uh, this improvement has occurred uh, everywhere. Now, it's important to think why this is the case, because it both explains why we've had this extraordinary turnaround, but it also gives us some feeling about can we, is there further still to go? To start off with two of the most important things, which drove a lot of child mortality until recently and still do in some areas. Sanitation, clean water and uh, safe disposal of feces, and malnutrition. Both of these are improving uh, if you take the globe as a whole, but there is still a way to go. So there are still big advances uh, that we can make in these areas. So starting with clean water and sanitation, and this really drove a lot of, in particular, the fecal-oral, diarrheal, and other uh, diseases. Uh, these have, the provision of clean water has been improving, and as has sanitation. Uh, and this has led to a substantial drop in fecal-oral diseases everywhere. But there are still over 2 billion people who lack access to safe drinking water, and there's still a lot of progress needs to be made in sanitation. The bad news is that's still the case. We must do something about that. The good news is that as that happens, child mortality will drop further. One of the good uh, things about improvements in sanitation and, uh, and, and safe water is that, uh, with a few exceptions, once progress is made, things don't tend to go backwards, except in major disasters such as an earthquake uh, or a war. Under nutrition... Uh, children dying of hunger, uh, of un undernutrition, stunting, uh, undernutrition of a variety of different types, has also fallen. Um, but there's still significant amounts of undernutrition, and the, the map on the right 
shows this, the, the steady improvement there's been in undernutrition. But as you can see, there is still some way to go. Again, uh, uh, as countries become wealthier, as families get wealthier, uh, as food is more widely distributed, uh, this will continue to improve and child mortality will improve further. There are some, uh, for this one, some backward uh, pressures, of which uh, the most important in the last two years has been COVID-19, which has interfered with uh, many aspects ranging from agriculture uh, through to uh, feeding programmes. And very uh, tragically, uh, the war in Ukraine uh, will exacerbate some of these problems. So those are two of the major things. The next large group of diseases which have been steadily improving are the vaccine-preventable diseases. So again, these are large numbers of infections. Uh, and um, so I've just given two examples just to demonstrate quite how powerful these vaccines against childhood disease are. On the left, uh, Hib, a uh, vaccine against a form uh, of meningitis that's com common in children or used to be common in children. And on the right, a rotavirus uh, vaccine uh, against diarrheal diseases. Uh, in both cases, these are UK data, it's simply because we've got clean data, it's easy to actually see uh, how the effect uh, occurred. Where the blue arrow is, is where the vaccine was introduced, and you can see an extraordinary drop away of those uh, diseases, which are threatening the lives uh, or um, dis the uh, disability uh, rates among children. These started in high-income countries, but are now uh, deployed worldwide, although, of course, there are places where they are not sadly available. If you add together all the vaccine-preventable diseases, and I did a full uh, lecture on vaccines, so I'm not going to go through uh, all of them, uh, you can see that they make up still quite a significant proportion of childhood illness. And as vaccines are rolled out to places where vaccines are still not available, we will, we will get uh, further gains from vaccines uh, as a protection of children under five. So if we just take an example, pneumonia, a infection which is passed on generally by respiratory transmission, has decreased an estimated 37% just in the period 10 years between 2005 and 2015. Uh, and a lot of this can be explained uh, by uh, vaccines, particularly pneumococcal vaccine, but others as well. And in blue, uh, you can see uh, on this graph, uh, anywhere that's in blue has had a significant reduction uh, uh, in their rates of pneumonia. The darker the colour, the bigger the change. So these changes have occurred uh, almost everywhere. There are a very small number of countries where that's not true. So those are water and sanitation, the fecal-oral uh, diseases, the respiratory diseases, some of the vaccine-preventable diseases. Then there are the vector-borne diseases, of which the most important in children is malaria. This is uh, still with us. It is still um, killing, uh, sadly, uh, over 600,000 uh, deaths, causing 600, over 600,000 deaths a year. 77% of which, so the great majority, are in children under five. Uh, the, the sort of two bits of good news, overall, the geography of malaria has steadily shrunk over the last 100 years. So the number of countries where malaria is a big problem uh, are many fewer. Uh, and uh, particularly over the last uh, 20 years, 
deaths have over halved, uh, and there was a really very steady reduction over the first two decades of this uh, century. Uh, unfortunately, a combination of biological factors, particularly insecticide resistance, um, which reduced some of the effects against uh, mosquitoes uh, and um, some drug resistance, uh, pushed uh, against uh, that an improvement. And the disruption that COVID-19 caused to uh, control programs has also led uh, to um, some backward uh, pressures. So we have, in fact, seen uh, some increase in malaria for the first time for a while over the last two years. But hopefully, uh, this can be reversed again. But this, again, is a remarkable achievement against one of the great diseases of childhood. And there are many other, but I'm these, just giving these examples of the things which have together, stacked up together, issues around nutrition, issues around infection uh, in particular, have led to really substantial improvements. And what you can see in this graph, which just so shows a selection of countries, they happen to be ones uh, with which I've been associated at various points, uh, that these are countries which have actually uh, all had decreases in their under five mortality, uh, uh, and they are converging on a very similar spot over time, obviously starting from very different places. So this convergence on much lower mortality in children under five uh, is occurring and occurring still. Now, within the uh, childhood diseases, there's one area where the, uh, in ch children under five where the risk is greatest and the progress has been slower. And that is... Uh, in the neonatal period, which is the first four weeks after a child is born. And if you look at the proportion of uh, deaths in children under five, uh, a very high proportion are in the first four weeks. And those are the ones that are in yellow uh, in this chart here. Now, it's not that neonatal uh, mortality, which is here shown in yellow um, uh, in some UNICEF data, uh, in terms of mortality since 1990, is not that that's not getting better, it is, it's improving, but it is falling at a much slower rate than the other causes that I've talked about of children who reach their first four uh, weeks uh, and then in the next period up to their fifth birthday. And therefore, because the rates of under five children after the neonatal period is falling really fast, neonatal period is falling slower, neonatal deaths are an increasing proportion of the children under five uh, who should be alive and well but are tragically dying at the moment. Now, we know how to reduce neonatal mortality very substantially. In high-income countries, uh, you would expect to have uh, maybe uh, less than three per, per thousand life births, uh, and you can go down from that. Um, uh, in places which, with uh, facilities, high-end high, high facilities. Uh, in low-income um, countries, uh, that's closer to 25 or 26 per thousand. And what that means is that there's a very long way we could go in terms of improvement using existing science and technology. Now, a few of these are really high-end things, but very many of them are things which are amenable to us improving them, including preterm birth, uh, including caused by some infections, birth asphyxia and inability to breathe at birth, so this is around birthing processes, and uh, infections, 
um, which often occur shortly after, or at least appear shortly after birth, uh, along with birth defects, some of which are preventable. These are leading causes of neonatal deaths, and we have things we can do about all of them, many of which can be used virtually anywhere in the world. So most of these uh, deaths, neonatal deaths, should be seen as preventable. Of course, uh, it, it will never be none at, all, none at all. Now, the reason I've concentrated so much on children under five is because they contribute so much to uh, mortality uh, in people under 60. And here what we have um, is uh, every five-year bands. Uh, under five is the left-hand band, and then five-year breaks from there on in. The first two uh, children, uh, first three rather, children uh, and young people, 15 to 19, uh, and then the blue bar, uh, the period 20 to uh, 50. What you can see uh, in this is, is several different things. The first of which is the extraordinary predominance of uh, deaths under five. If you survive from to, to five, you are not just likely to get to six, it's not just slightly delaying mortality, you have a very high chance of getting to 60. So getting people through that first five years is really important because the next period of life, mortality rates really are much, much lower. Probability of people dying uh, is uh, very low uh, in virtually all settings. Uh, and you can see this, uh, that the rates are uh, so, uh, incredibly low uh, and you really only rate, re reach the kinds of rates uh, that you're, you're seeing in the under fives once people get above 65. What this has led to is that there's a shift. So in this graph, what we've got is a very similar graph to the last one, but in red, we've got the situation in 1970, uh, in blue, the situation in 2000, uh, and in green, uh, the situation uh, in 2016, relatively recently. Now, what you can see is, firstly, the first bit of good news uh, is there has been a, as we've said before, a massive reduction in child deaths under five. The second is that we're seeing falls in mortality uh, in children and young people and in, uh, in young adults. And you really are now only seeing significant increases in the later stage of life. So if people survive their first five years, uh, they will usually live uh, through to uh, much later in their life, uh, generally past 60. So we're therefore seeing quite a significant shift in the pattern of mortality around the world, and this is not going to reverse. So this change, now it's been made, uh, is a one-way door and a very welcome one. And by the, to the, towards the far end, you've got people in their 90s, uh, and uh, here is where you're starting to see increases in mortality, but that's because these are people who would have died earlier uh, in other places. So that's good news, and I think an, an important secondary bit of good news on this is that there used to be a real worry, and a perfectly rational worry, that if uh, children survived, and there were large numbers of children surviving, um, this would lead to a, just an extraordinary expansion in the world population, uh, and this would essentially carry on uh, until it was limited by resources. This was an, an idea first put forward by the Reverend Thomas Malthus, uh, Malthusianism, uh, and um, perfectly respectable uh, argument. But the data demonstrates that in reality, uh, this is wrong. 
And although many people still actually believe this, that, uh, that um, children not dying is a good thing, but it'll lead to massive problems, uh, I think this is a misunderstanding of the data. It's now pretty clear that in places where there's reduced child mortality, widely available contraception, the second thing which the medical side can contribute, female education, and reduced poverty, really important, the result has been a very rapid drop in global fertility. So to maintain the population at a stable rate in any country, in any society, um, uh, if you have a rate of 2.1 children per uh, woman of childbearing age, um, that will lead to broadly stable population. Anything more than that, the population will increase. Uh, anything less, uh, uh, well, at least the numbers will increase. And anything less than that, uh, numbers start to fall away. Global fertility around the world as a whole is now down to 2.5, so it's still a bit above that 2.1. Uh, in high-income countries, come on to this, uh, it's now dropped below that replacement level. In Europe, it's around about 1.5, depends which country you're talking about. And so we've seen this real transformation as a result of children not dying, contraception, female education uh, development, from the situation on the left, uh, where everything in red uh, or orange populations were increasing in the 1950s to the situation on the right uh, with the same um, uh, color scale. Everything in yellow, uh, pale or dark, um, then populations are stable or falling. Uh, and the number of parts of the world where populations are still increasing is now becoming more and more concentrated in a small number of countries. But in East Asia, uh, increasingly in South Asia, uh, in uh, Latin America, uh, North Africa, a variety of other places, rates have really come down very substantially. And they've in fact come down in uh, many parts of uh, Africa uh, as well. And the result of this is that if we look over the next few decades, um, the UN Population Division uh, projects that global fertility will drop below the replacement level sometime in the next few decades. Exactly when will depend on a number of different factors. Once that's happened, it is very unlikely to reverse. Now, of course, populations then continue to grow because people are living longer. Those people who uh, would have, um, uh, you know, many, many people are living for a longer period. Uh, but there's a limit. And once you get to the point where the number of children being born per mother is dropped below 2 or 2.1, then you're going to get to a situation where the population stabilizes uh, and probably then starts to fall. So people being born today may well, for the first time in history, see not only uh, the, the uh, rate of fertility dropping below replacement levels, but actually the popula human population of the globe stabilizing and then uh, probably beginning to fall. This is an extraordinary transformation. And alongside this has been a real change in the geography of ill health as you go through the, the, the later part of um, life uh, for, for adults. Um, and if you look at life expectancy at birth, uh, again in 1950, uh, on the left, uh, and uh, in yellow or orange are uh, people, um, the life expectancy being under 50. In green, it's 60 to 65. Uh, in blue, uh, 75 to 90. And if you compare 1950s to 2020s, what you can see is everywhere in the world has really transformed. And uh, much of, for example, Africa or resource-poor parts of uh, Asia or Latin America 
have rates of mortality, uh, or rather, or more accurately, life expectancy, which is as good as or better than uh, the North America, Europe did back in the 1950s. So there have been improvements everywhere. Uh, obviously, people are starting from slightly different bases. So let's think about what's going to happen. So I talked about children, uh, and the, the big change I've just shown there is largely because children are not dying. As I said, once people have got through their first five years, there's a very high chance they will get through uh, to their 60s or, or later. Now, of course, there are risks in young adulthood, um, but the physical health outlook for young people and younger adults uh, is, which I'm classifying for this purpose as under 50, medically, that's what I would see as younger, uh, is getting better almost everywhere. So in the period between 5 and 50, chances of dying for most people are extremely low. Historically, infections would have had a big impact. Uh, things like TB, cholera would have killed uh, quite significant numbers. These uh, have largely gone away due to better sanitation, nutrition, uh, and medical treatment. HIV and a number of other infections which are acquired uh, after sexual debut, sexually transmitted infections like uh, the virus causes cervical cancer, the viruses that can cause some forms of liver cancer, acquired in early adulthood, but HIV being the big one, uh, are now improving. HIV mortality rates are dropping due to treatment. Uh, uh, hepatitis B and uh, cervical cancer rates are going to fall due to vaccination. But we've seen uh, a situation really transformed, and the chances of uh, young adults dying of infections are really substantially reduced over the last few decades. In terms of the classic non-communicable diseases, cancers, cardiovascular disease in particular, that can kill people, with a few exceptions, such as the early, uh, the very earlier cases of breast cancer, which usually peaks later in life, some of the lymphomas, uh, cancers are pretty rare in this age group, or very rare in this age group, as are fatal heart uh, disease uh, strokes. It's not that they don't occur, but they're extremely rare uh, in people under 50. There are, of course, some important diseases that can have uh, a, uh, an impact on life without necessarily causing mortality. Diabetes uh, is, an, is an example, and that's an increasing problem, which I'll come back to, driven by obesity. Uh, asthma, for example, may be going up in some areas. So I don't want to imply that everything is getting better absolutely everywhere, but the, in overall, the fatality rates are already naturally very low in young adults uh, and are falling. The big risks in this age period uh, tend to be accidents and injuries. And the leading causes of mortality in this age group include road traffic accidents, accidents at work where, you know, for example, scaffolding falls on people, accidental poisonings, suicide and homicide. Now, the first two of those, road traffic accidents and accidents at work, can be significantly reduced by state action uh, to uh, ensure that there are safer cars, safer roads in the case of road traffic accidents, um, uh, driving tests, for example, and also that there's legislation to ensure safety at work. Uh, and in high-income countries, rates of deaths on the road and rates of deaths at work have fallen steadily over the last decades. But therefore, a gap is, and on the top, what you can see, for example, is the number of deaths caused by road accidents in the UK right back to the 1920s. Uh, and as you can see, there's been, with some ups and downs, uh, uh, a steady decline over the last few decades. 
Uh, and what you're, we now have is a situation, rather nice graphic from uh, The Economist uh, using data from elsewhere. What you have is in very low income settings, road traffic accidents tend to be lower because there are many fewer people who've got access uh, to uh, road transport. Uh, and in high income countries, road traffic accidents tend to be low because of a combination of safety features, both in the car, the road, and the regulations. So the big risks here are in middle income countries. One important area of health, however, uh, is a particular risk in this period, and that is the first uh, arrival uh, of significant mental health disorders. People may have them long, lifelong, uh, but uh, young people and young adults is where the first presentations very often occur. So, and this is, going to, this is already important and becoming increasingly important. As physical causes of illness have decreased, the relative importance of mental health illness is increasing. And we've had much less progress uh, in turning around either preventing or treating quite large numbers of mental health disorders than physical ones. That's not to say there haven't been improvements. There definitely have. There have been some quite significant improvements. But they have been much slower, and therefore the relative importance of mental uh, health disorders has increased. And if you look on the right, what we've got here is uh, the peak age at which people are first uh, diagnosed or first uh, present with uh, mental health uh, disorders. Uh, on the left, these are things which tend to peak in mid-teens, for example, uh, anxiety and fear-related disorders, feeding or eating disorders. And on the right, um, personality disorders on the top, uh, schizophrenia and uh, psychotic disease uh, on the bottom. And what this demonstrates is that these are, tend to first present in young adults. So this is a, near, a period of life when we need to think really seriously about how we can prevent and treat uh, mental health disorders. Moving back to things which actually cause uh, physical uh, illness and uh, deaths um, uh, in large numbers, uh, if you look over time, and this I think is uh, probably obvious to people, but it's worth stressing, in red here, what we have is this is a, uh, an age chart of uh, when people die and what they die of. Uh, in red are infections, neonatal and nutritional disorders, and deaths uh, in red, which go up to about 10, are heavily dominated by infections and nutritional issues. Uh, in young adults, really the number of deaths is very small. There are contributions from various areas, as I've said, uh, including uh, accidents. But then once you get to middle age, which I'm going to define as over 50, um, uh, you start to get cardiovascular diseases, strokes uh, and heart attacks, uh, and cancers increasingly are an issue, uh, and they uh, get a greater and greater issue till you get right into your uh, late 80s. Now, if you look at the world um, uh, roughly as it is at the moment, and these are uh, data from Hans Rosling's uh, group uh, Gapminder, this is every country in the world with its income along the uh, bottom axis uh, and life expectancy in years uh, along uh, the left-hand axis. Uh, the ones in blue are from Africa, uh, from red are in Asia, uh, and uh, yellow um, are, are from uh, Europe. Uh, green, uh, the Americas. And 
what is extraordinary about this is firstly that these uh, all line up uh, along a straight line demonstrating that as countries get wealthier and ev almost every country not actively at war is over time, not in any given year, but over decades getting wealthier, uh, mortality uh, rates go down or more accurately, life expectancy goes up and countries are all moving from bottom left to top right. Now I put two arrows on this, under 50, uh, really, uh, very few countries have got life expectancies now under 50. In fact, basically, uh, almost none. Then you've got the range uh, 50 to 75. And in this uh, age range, cardiovascular diseases tend to play a very large part in mortality. And then towards the upper end of the range of this, so sort of 70s onwards, uh, you continue to get cardiovascular diseases, but cancers become uh, increasingly dominant in terms of mortality. But cancer and cardiovascular diseases in some combination, and right at the top, uh, we tend to get uh, mixtures of, disease, of uh, diseases which I'll come on to. If we look over time, and I, this is an obvious point in a sense, there's been an improvement uh, across the world. This is the same graph, slightly different axis, 1922, so t uh, 100 years ago, uh, and uh, 2021, last year, uh, what you can see with both of these is um, in 100 years ago, most countries in the world uh, under 50 dominated by infections. Uh, richer countries, uh, 50 to 75, uh, would have had a lot of uh, cardiovascular disease, some infection and cancers. We're now in a situation where uh, infections are much less important as a cause of mortality. Uh, or every country in the world is over, uh, pretty well, is over 50. Uh, and the wealthiest countries are over 75 and have a, a combination of different diseases, which can be problematic. But cardiovascular disease tends to dominate in that middle period. And you can see this here, just taking the UK as an example of a country that went through a transition uh, between uh, 1911 and 2012. So this is, again, there's 100 years of data from the ONS. And uh, in the solid line is circulatory diseases, heart, heart disease and stroke. Uh, and blue is in men, red is in women. Uh, dotted line um, is infections. Infections really fell away uh, as a cause as the country became wealthier. Uh, cancers have gone at a fairly steady rate over that time, and they're mainly in older, oldest people. But um, circulatory diseases, heart, heart, heart disease and stroke, uh, steadily increased really through to the 1950s and 60s and then started to improve. This pattern is likely to be followed for many countries as they industrialise. And we're now in a situation in the UK as a high-income country uh, where rates of heart disease and stroke have fallen very far. So this is um, uh, data from the 1970s through to very recently, Bouchard Foundation data. Uh, there's been around a 73% reduction in that time. Uh, men more than women, some of the difference explained uh, simply by smoking. This has been even more marked if we talk about people under 75. So this is people in their first 75 years. The chance of dying in a high-income country from heart disease are now very low, not zero, uh, and even lower uh, in women. And there's also been a significant improvement in strokes. So circulatory diseases, which go up as infectious diseases go away, um, uh, uh, as a cause of mortality, have then come down. And this pattern has been repeated uh, in many other highly industrialized countries over the last few decades. 
Other countries are still going through this transition. So here, for example, is India. Of course, there's very wide uh, varieties. Uh, India is a very large uh, country, a very large population. Uh, but what you can see is in blue and red uh, the trend line for ischemic heart disease uh, in the UK from an academic study, uh, and in green measured two different ways. But the trends what important what we've seen in India. Uh, and in, in India has not yet got to the point where the steady improvement in heart, in heart disease is yet occurring, but it will. And the reason it will, and thinking particularly about those under 75 uh, happen, is it's due to multiple incremental steps, and most of these are widely available to middle-income countries and to high, certainly to high-income countries. They include reductions in smoking. Smoking drives a lot of this cardiovascular disease, unfortunately, wholly preventable. Uh, air pollution, which is a significant risk for heart disease and stroke. Um, a range of drugs, statins, antihypertensives, beta blockers, ACE inhibitors, uh, aspirin. These drugs are now all very cheap and are available everywhere. So for middle-income countries, these are available provided people uh, can be screened uh, and or can be detected as being at risk uh, and treated. Uh, then slightly uh, more expensive, but actually still manageable, clot-busting drugs, drugs used when people have had a heart attack. Uh, and uh, the first one, really, that moves into a situation that needs uh, a relatively um, uh, well-resourced health system is cardiac stenting and cardiac surgery, something I'll actually be talking about um, in the next uh, year's uh, lectures. So all of these will improve. They'll improve either because the risk factor goes down. We will see reductions in air pollution and hopefully in smoking uh, in most countries, uh, or um, because the health service can start to use them effectively. And as the country develops, that will be increasingly true. Working against this, so slowing this progress down, rising obesity, uh, really significant problem and consequent diabetes uh, and sadly in some countries still increasing in smoking. So those are drivers of cardiovascular disease. Uh, when it comes to cancers, um, if people get cancer, mortality has dropped uh, very significantly in high-income countries now for very many of the cancers. Uh, and on, on this, what you can see is the change from the left hand to the right hand of this arrow for multiple cancers in 10-year survival uh, using the UK as an example of a high-income country. So really significant improvements in many of these cancers. As countries get richer, they will have access to this science and we will improve on the science. So uh, the ability to actually treat cancer will spread. And cancer uh, treatment is continuing to improve for the great majority. So just taking, uh, in the UK, the commonest um, cancers uh, in men and women, uh, as examples of these, uh, on the left, um, uh, prostate cancer, on the right, breast cancer. Survival has been steadily improving uh, till we get to the point where the great majority of people with both of these cancers uh, will survive 10 years and or more, uh, 10 years and more, uh, and have a good quality of life. So, so the, the outlook for cancer really transformed. These sciences will be transferred, already being used in some settings, but will increasingly become the norm. Uh, everywhere. There are sadly uh, some exceptions of which by far the most important is lung cancer and a number of other um, uh, cancers and diseases of smoking. The, the long-term outlook for lung cancer remains extremely poor even in high-income settings and sadly smoking contributes massively 
to this uh, avoidable mortality and morbidity. Lung cancer, virtually all of it, not absolutely all of it, uh, and a very high proportion of uh, heart disease, stroke, and other cancers. And as people are living beyond 50, because outlooks have looked uh, a lot better, the impact of this, this public health disaster of smoking uh, will become in increasingly clear. Uh, now, in many countries in Asia, uh, as in Europe and North America, uh, smoking is falling, but there are some in Asia where it's not. I've highlighted here, for example, Indonesia, uh, and there are certainly some countries, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa, uh, where smoking rates are, in fact, increasing. So pushing back on the tide of smoking is one of the simplest and most cost-effective ways we can help to ensure that the health gains that we've had in the high-income countries can be uh, more, more quickly realised in low-income countries, and it costs nothing. So smoking is one very, very big and preventable risk. Uh, the second uh, more difficult issue but important to tackle is obesity. This is going up everywhere in every country uh, pretty well, certainly in every region of the world. These are global statistics from the mid-70s uh, to recently uh, looking at, uh, at, at all the different continents. So this is an increasing problem in both men and women uh, everywhere. And if you look at a map on the left of those classified as obese, that's a BMI of over 30, uh, you can see a really substantial change in every country of the world. In general, higher income, the higher the income, the more the, the obesity happens. And as countries get wealthier, uh, obesity rates uh, go up. And that's certainly what we've seen in Europe, North America, uh, North Africa, quite large parts of the Middle East. Uh, and worryingly, uh, we're increasingly likely to see in South Asia, uh, Latin America, and Africa. So this is something which we really need to work out how we can move to a situation where improving development incredibly important to happen, doesn't inevitably lead to significant increases in obesity. Infections, there are also some potential backward pressures on these uh, improvements we've seen. So um, antimicrobial resistance against bacteria, against parasites, against viruses, and indeed against fungi, uh, threaten some of the advances we've made because a lot of the improvements we've seen in uh, infections have been caused by good access to these, and insecticides are important for uh, insect-transmitted infections such as um, uh, malaria, and that is, uh, we're getting insecticide resistance, which threaten our gains. So uh, resistance threatens some of the gains we're seeing, but uh, again, science and rational use of these uh, can slow down this risk and find us countermeasures. And I think it's important to acknowledge the very significant long-term effect, and in some places, parts of the world already, quite significant short-term effects, climate change is having as a backward uh, impact on health. So all these improvements in other areas, but this is definitely going to go backwards. They range from very direct things, such as heat stress, uh, slightly more uh, indirect things, such as flooding, uh, through uh, vector-borne diseases, uh, and then uh, issues such as changes in agriculture and the eco and, uh, economy of uh, more marginal um, uh, societies. So this is another backward pressure. But nevertheless, despite these, the outlook um, for the health of people uh, aged uh, 50 to 75, and indeed uh, from childhood through to 50, 
uh, is going to improve uh, in the great majority of countries. Now, the result of this is that mortality is increasingly concentrated by age. And just taking the UK as an example of a country uh, which has evolved from low income to middle income to high income by my current nomenclature, this shows over um, a period since the 1850s uh, when in someone's life they were likely to die. And what you can see in this graph is that on the left-hand side, these are the, the lower ones are the, the 1850s, 1870s, uh, and in red, 1900. Uh, obviously, a very significant number of people, children would die uh, before they reached their fifth birthday, in fact, in, in the neonatal period. But there was still a high chance of dying all the way through adulthood due to infections, uh, accidents, and so on. As those have reduced... The, aid, the probability of someone who gets through their first four weeks surviving uh, through to their 60s and then subsequently 70s uh, has gone up really very substantially. Very few people uh, will die now uh, between um, their, their fourth week birthday uh, and their 75th birthday. Uh, and so the, the age at which people are dying in our society is increasingly concentrated uh, in the period uh, 75 to uh, 100, uh, and actually really in quite a narrow range of that, uh, mainly uh, after 80. And this is my uh, final section, really, having talked about really very clear good news in children under five, really clear low risk in children uh, and young people under 18, also improving, low risk and improving, uh, in the young adults up to 50 and in, uh, in what I would consider medical, medical old, middle age from 50 to 75, significant improvements in cardiovascular and cancer uh, deaths in particular, but many other things. Uh, we now reach uh, older age, which uh, is, uh, we hope everyone will reach uh, as a result of the improvements in the younger stages everywhere in the world. Uh, and... I want to start off with a very clear statement that the outlook for individual conditions such as heart disease and cancer uh, is really improving in people over 75 and will continue to improve. So the outlook for health uh, for individual diseases is really good. Uh, and because older people are at higher risk, in fact, many of the biggest benefits uh, of the improvements we've seen in medical science are in this age group. We also have a number of degenerative conditions that may not kill people, but they're very debilitating, such as hip arthritis, which we have very good treatments for. So things like hip replacements, uh, just as a relatively straightforward example, uh, can be transformational. And these improvements, which are currently quite concentrated uh, in high-income countries or uh, high-middle or, high or richer people in other countries, are going to steadily disseminate as countries become wealthier. So these are all really positive trends. This improvement will be a lot faster, in fact, than it was in the currently high-income countries because a lot of the medical science can now be banked. It's already there. We'll continue to improve on it, but people can move. What's really limiting many countries uh, is their, their ability to afford some of the changes, not whether the science is there in the first place. So as uh, development occurs... Uh, we'll, they'll be able to move very rapidly uh, through to getting the medical benefits of these uh, scientific improvements. But there are, however, some diseases of old age for which we currently do not have um, good treatments, 
Uh, and an important uh, example, one of the most important ones, are the dementias of old age, uh, Alzheimer's disease, Lewy body dementia, vascular dementia. And because people are not dying of other things, heart disease, uh, strokes, uh, cancers, infections in earlier life, people are living long enough to get these. It's not that the rates themselves are going up. In fact, if anything, in the UK, the actual rate is probably going down. Uh, but the number of people who are living to the point where they get uh, dementias have, are steadily increasing and therefore the number of people living with dementia will increase in the UK. And this is therefore likely to occur uh, in, uh, it is already occurring in high-income countries and is likely to occur in all countries as they uh, develop uh, and fortunately citizens can live uh, to uh, what would historically be seen as a good old age. There is also a problem which medical science is not uh, adequately really addressing, and that is, in old age, uh, uh, individual chronic conditions accumulate. So this is a graph on the right. It's a well-known one from the UK. Um, but uh, as we grow older, we start to guess diseases. People live, fortunately, for much of their life, usually disease-free or with very trivial diseases that don't interfere with their life. But they then start to accumulate them. So they may only have one disease or chronic condition uh, at the age of, let's say, 65. Uh, but they might have six uh, at the age of 85. So increasingly, we're going to have populations with a preponderance of older people with multiple conditions simultaneously, which may on first sight at least look as if they're unrelated to one another. And this is a problem because medical science and organisation is basically designed around single diseases. We're very good at treating heart disease or a particular cancer or a particular infection. Uh, what we're now having to help is maximise the quality of life for people with potentially multiple simultaneous chronic conditions. And then this moves further down from several diseases to people being very frail uh, and uh, eventually um, uh, often becoming quite dependent. And there is much less clarity about how science will develop in this area. Uh, I am confident that science will improve in this area. I'm absolutely confident about that. Uh, but um, whereas there's a really clear line of sight about how things are going rapidly better in many cancers, cardiovascular disease, and infections. Uh, in this area, I think the future is less clear. And finally, there is a societal question. This is not a medical question. How we support people in older age, because in every society now, the great majority of people will reach older age, uh, where they become frailer. This is a societal question. Uh, at least as much as a medical question. And the answer to that may well vary by society, uh, but every society is going to have to wrestle with this, and fairly soon. Almost every country is now moving to a situation where the majority of their population will reach older age and an age where frailty or more degenerative diseases become common. But I'd like to return, really, to um, my uh, optimistic starting point. Global health is improving at a really remarkable pace due to the combination of medical science gradually accumulating, don't go backwards on that, and development. Child mortality, which I talked about a lot at the beginning, uh, is dropping very fast. Slower improvements in the neonatal period, but they are uh, improving, but we need to concentrate very heavily on that. If people get through their first five years, their chance of living through um, uh, to uh, their beyond 50 are incredibly good in virtually all parts of the world. Uh, health of adults under 50 is already very good and steadily improving everywhere. 
The health of those uh, in the 50 to 75 kind of band is also improving, but there are some risks that we really need to counteract, such as smoking uh, and obesity. And these are predictable problems, and for countries that don't have large amounts of either of these, the key thing is to stop them acquiring them as they transition through to the high income uh, future, which we hope they all ha they have. More complicated areas, longevity in older people over 75 is improving. That's excellent. Uh, we're dealing with many diseases in these people, allowing people to live, uh, which all of us want to, uh, to a good old age, free from many major diseases. Uh, but uh, disability, frailty uh, are still things that I think we have some way to go to be clear what the future holds. So we should recognise the extraordinary triumphs, the fact that this is going, this has irreversibly changed the shape of the world that what our grandparents were born to will be completely different to what our grandchildren will be born to. Um, but there are also limits to medical science uh, and we need to think very seriously about how we support the oldest, which is where in every society we are going. Thank you very much. Well, this is um, very sadly Professor Whitty's final lecture as the 38th Gresham Professor of Physic. He will be returning to the college next year as a visiting professor, but I just wanted to say a few words of thanks at the end of this, his tenure of the professorship. I think it's safe to say that no professor of physic in the last 426 years since the first Gresham Professor of Physics uh, has had to contend with the challenges that Professor Witte has. He continued with his Gresham lectures alongside his considerable duties as Chief Medical Officer during the COVID-19 pandemic. His commitment to public education and outreach is such that he even provided an additional special lecture on COVID in April 2020. And this has had nearly 200,000 uh, views. He still practices as an NHS consultant physician at uh, UCLH and at the Hospital for Tropical Diseases. And before coming Chief Medical Officer, he was Professor of Public and International Health at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Professor Whitty's uh, tenure as Professor of Physic at Gresham College began in 2018. His first series of lectures was on infectious diseases, the oldest enemy. This provided uh, an overview of how these diseases have dominated medicine and mortality in the UK and how they remain a threat as a result of widespread travel, antimicrobial resistance to drugs and changing demographics. The series began with a lecture on epidemics and pandemics in October 2018 and this has now been viewed over 150,000 times. Uh, his second series uh, began in 2019. This was Cancer, a fight we are steadily winning with accounts of various types of uh, cancers and the developments in their treatment. In 2020 to 21, he presented lectures on major debates in public health, including talks on the role of the state, vaccination, 
obesity and screening. And this was followed by his current series on infections and their routes of transmission, including uh, accounts of respiratory routes, insect vectors, sexual transmission, food and drink, and touch. Well, we are so grateful to you for your incredible efforts to communicate the science of medicine to a wide and diverse audience particularly at a time when misinformation and disinformation were proliferating. Uh, Professor, your lectures have provided and continue to provide an authoritative source of information. We at the college are most grateful to you for everything you have done and we look forward to welcoming you back next year as a visiting professor for your series of lectures being uh, on the subject of diseases of the heart. Thank you very much.